Broadway Radios. This week on Broadway for Sunday, February 18th, 2018. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia, Jan Simpson, and Julie Musbach. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many of the places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Jan Simpson. Jan is the a director of arts and culture journalism program at Cooney's Graduate School of Journalism. Also writes for TDF Stages, American Theater, and has her own blog at Broadway and Me. Good morning, Jan. Morning. Good morning. Also joining us is Julie Musbach. Julie is a full-time writer and editor for Broadway World. Her previous work includes the assistant publicist to companies such as the Paper Mill Playhouse with Drama League and art department assistant for Fox Studios Australia on Rake, a 2013 film starring Richard Roxburgh. Thanks uh, for joining us, Julie. Thank you. Hello. Hello. Michael's not with us today. He is in Washington, D.C., seeing uh, the uh, Kennedy Center production of Chess and a West Side Story, and he's going to be back next week to talk with us. Also, uh, Debbie Schrager from uh, the D.C. area, one of our listeners, is also going to joining us next week to talk about the Chess concert as well. So we look forward to that. With us this morning, we have a very special guest. Katrina Lenk is joining us by telephone. Broadway fans know Katrina, of course, from the runaway hit The Band's Visit. We've also seen her in Indecent, Once, Spider-Man, Turn Off the Dark. We're going to have to hit that. And uh, The Miracle (laughs) Worker. And uh, something else in my research, you did a special concert called Barack on Broadway and How I Miss Those Days. Oh. oh my goodness! <laughs> <laughs> yes. And uh, yes. <laughs> and and last year you were the recipient of a Theater World uh, uh, Dorothy Loudon Award for Excellence, and we we uh, have somebody connected with Theater World here, don't we now? So uh, thank you for getting up on a Sunday morning and chatting with us. So, tell well, us, my pleasure. <laughs> tell us this this whole band's visit ride. How long have you been on this ride? Uh, since, uh, last year we, um, had like a, a workshop in maybe July and then did the off-Broadway production in the winter. And then, uh, now we're doing the uh, the on-Broadway production, which is, uh, it's, uh, it's pretty exciting. (laughs) We've, uh, we've heard that Band's Visit's been in the works for so long. So you just joined it for the, uh, just before Atlantic Theater Company last year? Yeah, yeah. 
Wow. All right. What I was going to say is there are very few people, of course, who can uh, say that in one year, in the same calendar year, that uh, there was an appearance in a Broadway play as well as a Broadway musical. And this must be an astonishing thing for you, considering the fact that uh, you've had to work your way up in your career. I mean, you, you took over in Spider-Man. You took over in Once. Uh, you were an understudy in The Miracle Worker. I mean, wow. When success happens, it happens very quickly, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, it, uh, yes, we're, uh, this is how I respond to this question. Like, I just, I don't know what to say. It still feels, um, overwhelming and strange. And, uh, with both Indecent and Band's Visit, uh, you know, Indecent was an even longer process. It was two years of doing it, you know, in various um, places like at Yale and La Jolla and then off Broadway at the Vineyard. And we had no idea that it would catch fire the way that it did and we were just doing this project because we all loved it and it just it somehow kept moving forward and people responded to it and uh it was it was kind of similar with bands visit like when we when we started we of course we loved the project but didn't you never really know how the people are going to respond to it who come to see the show so again we were just also like oh yay everyone likes it too and (laughs) so um (laughs) yeah it's a really nice set of coincidences i gotta say (laughs) all right now was there ever a possibility that uh, you might uh, be able to do both shows uh after all, uh, Indecent could have run longer and should have. And uh, would you have had to have made a decision there, I would imagine? And um, what decision would you have made? Thank God I did not have to make that decision. Sure. So it all it all, it all worked out great. Uh, yeah, so I'm not even going <laughs> to drive myself I... nuts with that. <laughs> Fine. So now you have the, uh, the band's visit uh, cash recording coming out. Um, and... Uh, I think that's coming out uh, this week or next week. Um, what, what, when did you guys uh, get into the studio to record that, and what's this uh, schedule been like for you? We went in the Monday after we opened, uh, the the Sunday and Monday after we opened. So we were all like, "What?" Kind of, you know, exhausted <laughs> from the whole. Um, the whole many, many weeks leading up to opening and, um, but it was, it was a really fun two days in the studio to all kind of still be together and uh, get to put the music down together. Um, so it was, uh, it was a really neat thing to get to do. Uh, and it's been, the schedule since then has been also kind of, uh, very busy. Just, uh, there's always things to be doing. (laughs) Um, yeah. Sure. You you know, you have your 10 out of 12s um, a couple of weeks leading into opening night, and then you do this uh, cast recording. Did you, uh, were yeah. there uh, uh, changes that you had between Atlantic Theater Company and Broadway that you had to, uh, that fine tuning that was happening in between the two productions? Um. Yeah, I'd say there weren't like massive changes, but more fine tuning, like you say, and, uh, um, I know there were certain things technically that we weren't able to accomplish in the time we had off Broadway that David Cromer, our director, was very excited about actually getting to do once we moved to a larger space with more time. And uh, so there, because um, there's a turntable. Can you give us an example of one? Uh, sure, sure. There's a turntable that we use throughout the <laughs> production. And um, off Broadway, it was quite tricky because we didn't have, in the rehearsal leading up to the production, we had 
no turntable like in the rehearsal room so it was a lot of like imagining I guess I'll be rotated over here by this point I don't know (laughs) so there was so much of the play that we couldn't really quite stage until we got into the theater and then we only had like two weeks before we had to have an audience so we um like the 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 final song uh answer me we never really quite got it to how we wanted it uh with the turntable and the lighting and all this stuff so that has been I think maybe that might have changed the most uh from the off-broadway to this one now there's this beautiful lighting that happens in these uh these visuals and the the turntable it's just it's quite stunning um so like things like that we also um we added an extra, we added a, an additional musician to the uh, Alexandria Ceremonial Police Orchestra, Osama Farouk, who uh, plays the darbuki, the, the drum. Uh, so and he's been added since the off-Broadway production. He's fantastic. And it, it's he's great to have him on stage more. Yes, he's really, and he loves to play. He loves music so much and loves to play so much and is just so generous with it, like always like playing and showing us things. And uh, yeah, he's wonderful. Um, and just the, the, also that the fact that the musicians are now like the band is now on stage more and kind of, um, uh, within the storytelling of the the piece more than off Broadway, they were kind of like pushed into the upper corner or like completely disappeared into the pit. So now they're, they're definitely more present, which is great. So you've had other, I mean, once was very similar in that respect, uh, you've had other experiences uh, along the, those lines, bringing that music up on stage, and it's such an integral part of the story. Uh, we talked. Yeah, to Andrew, yeah. We talked to Andrew Polk uh, last week or the week before, and and he brought us his stories about the turntable as well. About in rehearsal, <laughs> in rehearsal, just imagining the turntable, and then you know, kind of at Atlantic Theater Company, the first couple of performances, learning the turntable while you had live audiences. Yes. So, uh, you are no uh, stranger to learning on the stage. Uh, In our rundown before, we mentioned that you did Spider Man. So, um, Mm -hmm. can you give us any insight into, you know, a couple of years' reflection into what it was like to do Turn Off the Dark? Um, I had a fantastic time doing that show. I was just over the moon. I I really love uh, flying, and you know, any any time I can hang from the rafters, I'm, uh-huh. I'm all over it. Um, so that was really fun. And uh, the time I was there, there was no there was no drama. You know, there was no one. Yeah. There, I know there's lots of press always about people getting hurt. And in the time I was there, there was no, nothing like that. It was, it was a like a well-oiled machine. Everyone knew what was going on, and uh, it was a great cast. Um, although I, I was, it took me a really long time to not be so horribly nervous <laughs> because, uh, the, that, you know, the pressure that, oh my God, people are paying so much for these tickets and I'm just coming down from the ceiling. And if I make a mistake, there's no one to help me. Cause a, a lot of Arachne's track is just, she's just up there by herself singing up in the really high and there's no like scene partner that can like help you if you forget something. There's like nothing. You're completely <laughs> alone. Um, and just hanging in the darkness before you like enter from the ceiling. There's like three or four minutes where you just hang completely alone 
and looking down on your castmates who are doing their scenes. And it was, uh, I struggled with a, a, a bit of stage fright hanging up there like, oh my God, what if I forget everything? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so that was like a, um, a trial by fire, I guess, in a way, like either you figure out how to deal with your brain in the dark <laughs> or you don't. Um, so I, I learned a lot of things from that show. I've read that you um, always had the pull between music and acting. and um, But you originally went to L.A. after school instead of New York. And I'm just yeah. curious about why the decision when you are so obviously – uh, natural and wonderful on stage that you went to LA and then what what finally got you here where you belong in New York oh thanks for saying that um I uh when I was in Chicago I I fell in love with doing uh films I'd done like a couple of indie films and um uh, some commercial work and I was just just really itching to do more films and maybe get into television as well and so that, that brought me out to LA, uh, that pursuit <laughs> and, um, through a certain amount of like bad timings and bad luck, I, I wound up not really getting as far forward in that direction as I wanted to while I was there, but there's a vibrant theater community in LA, which I wasn't aware of before going there. So I just kept doing while I was waiting to get where I wanted in the TV and film direction, there was, I was just constantly doing theater because I, I love it and it was still getting a way to work on my craft and um so that so I was still doing this thing that I love in LA which seems strange that it would happen in LA the theater um and uh Spider-Man came well first was the the phone call from Kate Wariski uh who I'd worked with before uh on a couple productions in uh La Jolla at South Coast Rep sorry, not in San Diego, in South Coast Rep, sorry, in California. And um, she called me and asked if I would come to New York and understudy the miracle worker. And I was like, oh my God, this is actually Broadway calling me. Like literally it's Broadway saying, <laughs> come. And, you know, my mom would always say this thing when Broadway calls, you answer. So I was like, well, I guess I got to go. So I packed up all my stuff and, you know, moved to New York to thinking, okay, this is now where I'm going to live. And that wound up not quite, not quite going that way. And so, uh, I came back to LA and then a few years passed and we're doing more theater and la la la. And then Spider-Man comes to Chicago and LA to audition for replacements. Uh, and that's, that's what brought me back to New York, uh, the second time. And, uh, here I am. <laughs> So uh, uh, Elizabeth Vincentelli in the New York Times uh, wrote a, a profile on you, and the headline was, Katrina Link Can Quietly Break Your Heart. Uh, <laughs> are, were you ready for this type uh, of reaction to the band's visit? At what point did you know that the band's visit was special? Uh, uh, to answer your first question, no. <laughs> Definitely not ready. <laughs> Um, and, uh, I, 
I mean, a, 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 I don't know, shows that you're in when you love them. I guess it's kind of like how you people feel about their kids. Like, my kid is the best kid. I love this kid. <laughs> everyone, this, this, you know, so every, I mean, you know, every, you, I think everyone feels like their show is special or the thing they're working on is special or at least hopes that it is. Because um, you, you kind of fall in love with all the, the shows that you work on, hopefully. Mostly. <laughs> you, um, you've, you've taken two shows very quickly from off-Broadway to Broadway, both Indecent and The Band's Visit. Has it been different playing off-Broadway, Broadway, the responses from the audience, just the feeling? Um, yes. Uh, with Indecent, we had sort of been, we had enough experience with doing it in uh, three other theaters with three different kinds of audiences mm. before we brought it to Broadway. So um, I think we were sort of um, trained and like, okay, this kind of audience might be like this. So it didn't, it wasn't as unusual as it feels like the audiences off Broadway for a band's visit were um, pretty consistent. And then the Broadway audiences, they vary wild, uh, wildly, I think, in their reactions, depending on the day and what's happening in the world also has changed since we did the band's visit off-Broadway. Mm. Um, so I think there's more variance in the Broadway audiences uh, than the off-Broadway, but also the off-Broadway audience was very small. It was just a tiny, sure. you know, 200-seat theater, and this is over a 1,000 people. So I guess, you know, that's a larger uh, group of people that are coming. So of course there's going to be more variation, but. Uh, and and you guys uh, went to Israel in between off Broadway and Broadway. Yes. Yeah. How does that change or inform the performances and the production as a whole? Um, I think there's, uh, it was such a like, extraordinary thing to get to do. Um, to get to go to Israel and, and be in the town where the film was mm. shot and uh, hang out with Iran uh, Kalirin, the filmmaker, and we got to meet some of the cast of the film. And um, it was uh, like you get an experiential knowledge of a place that mm-hmm. before maybe you were only reading about or, or like doing as much research as you can, but you get, get to actually go there and things are are like can be in your body and in your memory in a way that mm. can only happen if you've been to the place. And of course it was a short amount of time. So it, you know, of course I'm no expert in what it's like to be there, but I have a, a definite, um, mm, uh, more specific sense memory. I think, I think those of us that went there also got like a, a deeper sense of, of the place. So Katrina, before you go, let's, uh, get uh, a few uh, biographical details out of you. You, are, you oh, said okay. you're, from, <laughs> you're from the Chicago area. Was that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, where did you go to school? Uh, Northwestern. Oh, you went to Northwestern? So oh, you, you mean like high school? Uh, no, well, like where, yeah, where, where, where did you grow up and then where did you go to uh, college? Yeah. I, was, I grew up in the, the western burbs of, of Chicago, uh, Barrington, and then went to Northwestern to study music, with, uh, to study viola performance, actually. Oh. Um, and my, my viola teacher was a professor there, and I, he's a Peter Slowick. He was a fantastic, fantastic teacher, and I wanted to continue studying with him. So I went to Northwestern and um, 
just couldn't stop doing theater. <laughs> couldn't stop doing theater and dance. Um, it's good. Were you it's in a good the- theater school. Oh, yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. Were you in any yeah. WAMU shows? I was just going to ask. Yes. <laughs> yes, I think I did two of them. Yes, mm-hmm. the WAMU shows. Yes. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, brothers, sisters, family in the business, anything like that? Uh, no, just me. Um, my brother's, uh, my brother's an accountant and my, my folks are, my dad's like a computer guy. And, um, so, but they always were, um, very appreciative of music. My brother studied the cello, um, when we were kids. So we were, there was a lot of duets around the house, um, and crying because we did not want to do duets. <laughs> so, uh, so there was definitely always an appreciation and a, an encouragement and a support for uh, the arts from, from my folks. So I'm very lucky. You have a band called Moxie Finks. Uh, tell us yeah. a little bit about that. Do you have time to keep working on this as the band's visit is ongoing? Um, she's uh, she's on a little bit of a hiatus right now. Uh, she's a... Uh, um, it's, I explain. She's kind of this, um, kind of a persona, I guess, which sounds uh-huh. pretentious to say, but like she's a, a character, <laughs> I guess. Um, and it's like this. Uh, I, I write the music and uh, do the arrangements, and um, usually it's me and my computer and my viola, maybe, and, and singing. But there's also there's like uh, there's wigs and like some crazy costume changes and and sort of shenanigans that happen in, in the set. So it's kind of like performance art, kind of uh, storytelling, weird stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but I, she's, a, she's, a, she's taking a break right now just because it, it does require a lot of brain space to put a show like that together. And uh, the Ben's visit is kind of, is, is a priority right now. I love your description. Come calling back. yourself a bonkers lady about... On your about page, <laughs> that made me laugh right away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Katrina, thank you so much for joining us on Broadway Radio uh, to talk a bit, a little bit about the what's going on in your life. We want to remind listeners well, that thanks Ghost for Light, having me. Ghostlight Records is putting out the uh, CD for the band's visits coming uh, online and in stores on Friday, February twenty third. Uh, and Katrina, thank you so much, and um, we hope to talk with you again. Thanks so much for having me. This is the park. It's not look like a park. You have to imagine. You see this. This is the grass. And there where the children play and this this is the sea do you hear the sea? yes tell me Tufik how does it feel to do music to have the orchestra how does it feel to have all the people waiting for you and all the eyes for you and oh. you know well it's um, 
Des wat? Okay, in the review section, Peter, you got a chance to see uh, Bernadette Peters in Hello, Dolly. So uh, give us uh, your rundown of that. She's sensational beyond belief. Uh, I was very afraid for this production, figuring that people wouldn't be interested in the show once Beth Midler had left. But I think word of mouth is going to be astonishing on this uh, because she does everything right. She also has her own take on some of the songs. And what I mean is... It seems as if sometimes she's coming in a little early or coming in a little late, but she knows exactly what she's doing. She's playing with the score every now and then. It's it's sort of like, you know how people say, um, it's okay to break the rules, but you got to know the rules to break the rules? Well, it's the same type of thing. She knows the score inside out, and as a result, she can play around with it a little. But the most important thing is the fact that she really has created such a character that's funny when it's, she's supposed to be funny. But more to the point, I have never, ever seen in the 17 productions of Dolly I've seen uh, anybody who connects with Ephraim as well as Bernadette Peter does when she talks to her late husband. She is magnificent in these scenes. By the way, um, I was supposed to go Saturday afternoon. They contacted me and said, you can't come because Gavin Creel is out and we want you to see him and uh, he'll be back Saturday night. Well, if there was something wrong with him, I don't know what it was, because I'm telling you, uh, he seemed to be at the top of his game. He didn't seem to be in any pain from any injury, which I think is what um, caused him to be out in the first place. So it's really wonderful to see the show in top-notch shape. Everybody is still wonderful. And we have a newcomer, and that's Charlie Stemp, who made a big splash a couple of years ago in London playing the lead, Arthur Kipps, in Half a Sixpence. Now, it's to go from that astonishingly... <laughs> difficult and um, song after song after song after song lead to playing a small role, Barnaby, in this production really says something about this young man that he really wants to establish himself in America and he's willing to start um, at close to the bottom because Barnaby is not that great a role or a time-consuming role. So um, how wonderful to see him doing such terrific work as a supporting player. He knows he's a supporting player. He's content, at least (laughs) ostensibly he's content, to be a supporting player as well. And uh, he does the job beautifully. So I think um, I'm very impressed that he would... uh, do this, and I imagine that um, he's looking forward to uh, use this as a stepping stone. Say, hey, why can't there be a uh, half a sixpence production here in America? Why not? So, also new to the cast is Molly Griggs, um, playing Minnie Faye, taking over for Beanie Feldstein, and um, she's quite wonderful too. Uh, you do miss the moment where the chorus member picked up Beanie, which was um, you know, a, a, a bit of a feat given the fact that. Um, um, she's not a size three, but anyway, um, this, this, uh, young woman is, um, is a uh, more felt. So as a result, they decided to drop that moment, but still she's, I, I, I liked her better. Um, although she does have, uh, Beanie's, uh, maniacal laugh that, uh, well, <laughs> uh, what was so terrific was if you did not know, if you heard an audio recording of the audience, 
you would not know that you were not seeing a Bette Midler performance because they were just as enthusiastic about Bernadette Peters as they were about Bette Midler. I mean, I was very surprised even when the overture began and um, there was applause there. But when the Hello, Dolly title song came in the overture, there was applause there, too. I didn't think there would be because I would think that the people who are coming to Hello, Dolly now might not know that that was such a titanic hit in 1964. Um, I don't know what people know about that song today, but um, it's entirely possible that um, this is not an audience populated by newcomers, but by people who are coming to see Bernadette Peters do it, as so many people did from 1964 to uh, the end of the run when uh, they used to come back and see Betty Grable and Martha Ray uh, and certainly, of course, uh, Pearl Bailey. But um, the enthusiasm was just magnificently wild. And um, that was true of Put On Your Sunday Clothes, one of the great songs in the musical theater canon, and certainly the title song and the waiter's gallop and all that. So uh, really, I don't think you've missed anything if you didn't see Bette Midler, uh, because you're really getting a full body characterization here. And um, Hello, Dolly still ranks as a lot of fun, and we can learn a lot from it. We can, because when Dolly says, my husband was a pleasure-loving man, well, (laughs) yes, we all should be pleasure-loving people. Um, This is a show that teaches us to enjoy the pleasures. As Irene says, oh, Dolly, isn't the world full of wonderful things? You bet it is, and Dolly is one of them. I I didn't hear you say the words Victor Garber, did you? Oh, it, how awful. How awful. Uh, forgive me, Victor. He's I not apologize. awful. <laughs> <laughs> I was awful, not to mention it. Good for you. Good for you. That's what I get for doing these things off the top of my head. Anyway, yeah, he's terrific. Um, he, he's slightly different from uh, David Hyde Pierce, and uh, he's wonderfully gruff when he has to be. And uh, he melts very nicely uh, towards the end of the show. So, no, he's, he's top-notch as well. I, again, Mr. Garber, I apologize profusely for not bringing you into the Equation. And it's very nice. I think he does a very good job of Penny in My Pocket. And the audience really enjoyed it um, tremendously. Uh, after all, this was the song that was dropped in Detroit, which was the end of the first act there, when it was a big production number where people brought in 106, not 105, not 107, literally 106 props um, to indicate how wealthy he was, a grandfather clock here, you know, this and that there. Um, when they finally decided that uh, people wanted to know more about Dolly and not as much about uh, Horace Van. Undergelder. So uh, in this production, yes, you get Penny in uh, my pocket. And of course, uh, if you saw the Tony Awards last year, you certainly saw David Hyde Pierce do it. So, um, so Victor Garber, yes, is quite fine. And uh, again, I apologize. Julie, uh, you got an opportunity to see Bernadette as well. So do you have anything to add? I would agree wholeheartedly. I saw all three dollies. I saw Bet, I saw Donna, and then I saw Bernadette. And I would say, That It's absolutely true. You're not missing anything if you go see Bernadette and you didn't see the other ones. I loved everyone for different reasons. I was very impressed, though, by how Bernadette made it her own dolly. I mean, of course, she's one of the greatest performers we have on Broadway, but she knew what to do with the character. She knew where to take it. She played off of the audience in the same way that Bette did, but used, you know, her own strength. I thought it was just extremely well done. I loved it. 
Oh, by the way, uh, let me also say, um, when the matchmaker was first done here, matchmaker is the play in which Dolly is based, Ruth Gordon played the part. And she was uh, this Ruth Gordon, if you know her, maybe you've only seen her in the movie Rosemary's Baby, but she's this little diminutive lady. And of course, Bernadette's reasonably diminutive too. So as a result, she reminded me a bit of Ruth Gordon, not that I saw Ruth Gordon in The Matchmaker, but it sort of brought back um, a possibility of my imagining what Ruth Gordon was like in a way that I've not had with any other Dolly. So there's fun in that too. Who's uh, standing by now? I don't know. I don't have the playbill next to me, so... uh, (laughs) Oh, I do. You do? Tell us. Let's see. Let me see. I see lots of understudies, but I don't see a standby on the website. Carmen Ruby Flood is understudying. Jessica Sheridan is understudying. But they don't have a standby. Oh. uh, Uh, At least on the website. uh Uh-huh. I don't see one listed on the playbill. Isn't that something? Is Bernadette's not doing eight, is she? Oh, yeah, she is, in fact. Oh, oh so yeah. that's why there's no standby. Well, nevertheless, uh, who's who's um, going to take over in case she uh, gets a cold? A person can develop a cold, so... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> okay, so uh, Bernadette Peterson-Dolly, as we were talking about uh, on Today on Broadway, a, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Riedel wrote a whole column about... Oh, is Bernadette good enough? And of course, she is good enough. <laughs> and, and I, I said uh, th- that was last week's duh. So, <laughs> all right. Um, so, Jan, you got mm-hmm. a chance to see uh, Porto at the Women's Project. So, tell us about that. Uh, Porto is uh, by the playwright Kate Benson, uh, who I think is in her thirties. I'm pretty sure she's uh, in her 30s because this is a a rom-com for the millennial generation. It's uh, a play set primarily in a bar in Brooklyn. And this young woman, her name is Porto. The title of the play is Porto Lowercase in Brackets. And I still haven't figured out what that means. But Porto, the character, is kind of an every woman. She's not overly attractive. She's not overly uh, bright. She's just a, a really nice genuine uh every woman and she comes into this bar uh just about every night and she's well known there her her friends come in and they hang out and one night she meets uh a guy there who's a newcomer to the bar and this is because it's in brooklyn it's a a a really hipster bar and because the playwright is kate benson i saw a previous play of hers, which some people may remember, it's called A Beautiful Day in November on the Banks of the Greatest of the Great Lakes. And, <clears throat> excuse me, Benson likes to play with the form and she likes to play with character names. And in Porto, the characters are named after what they do. Um, there's a, a character named Doug the Bartender, and everybody calls him. Doug, the bartender, Raphael, the waiter, and the customers are named 
with the exception of Porto, the customers are named uh, for their drinks. Hennepin for the beer, Dry Sack for the uh, sherry. And so um, they come in to this bar and Porto strikes up what seems to be a, 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 a fledgling relationship with uh, Hennepin. And the question, of course, is whether or not uh, a woman, a modern woman who uh, has her own life and her own job, can she be in a relationship with a man without losing her identity? Throughout the play, Porto's thoughts are narrated by Kate Benson, the playwright, off stage. We don't see her until uh, the curtain call, but there's a steady narration. As uh, we go through the relationship with Porto uh, and, and, and Hennepin, there is a scene where she's debating how she should respond to various actions of his, and all of a sudden we get um, uh, two... Um, world-famous feminists. Um, I'm vamping here because I'm trying to remember exactly who the the two are. Um, We get uh, Gloria Steinem and Simone de Beauvoir. And they debate uh, for her uh, uh, what positions she should take uh, in the relationship. There are lots of references that I think um, uh, people uh, in the millennial generation would 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 catch, uh, uh, and I think that's so because people around me and there are a lot of young people uh, in the theater were laughing. Uh, I didn't get them. I'm not a millennial, uh, uh, and it wasn't really a play again that was aimed at me, and yet uh, primarily because of the performance of the woman who plays Porto, Julia Seria, no, I guess it's Julia Serna Frest is her name. She was just so genuine and so real in the role that I think regardless of uh, your demographic or your gender, you can uh, identify with her and and her vulnerability uh, about whether to be open to this relationship and how to be uh, open uh, to this relationship. Um, the play is um, uh, amusingly directed by uh, Lee Sunday Evans, and it's really imaginatively imaginatively designed by Kristen Robinson. Um, the audience is uh, on the bartender side of the bar. And so we see people sitting at the stools. We see the bartender uh, fixing drinks. And then the the, the sort of absurdist scene with uh, Steinem and de Beauvoir. Um, I'm going to leave that uh, reveal for, for people who go to see it. I will say, though, that they are played by men. Simone de Beauvoir and Gloria Steinem. Um, and uh, that puts sort of a, a, a spin on it that I'm still trying uh, to figure out because 
uh, even after seeing the play, writing about it, thinking about it, I still don't know exactly where Kate Benson, the playwright, comes out on this continuum. But it's an entertaining evening. You know, back in the 90s, Ann Bogart did a production of A Kaufman and Hearts Once in a Lifetime at uh, ART in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And she did something like this in the sense that she had somebody reading the stage directions. And I got the impression that uh, Ann Bogart had read the play and said, you know, these stage directions are so funny themselves that uh, mm-hmm. I think that people should hear them. Was there any type of uh, thing like that that was going on here, uh, given that she was essentially reading stage directions? And- no, they're not stage directions. Oh. They're, um, they're Porto's thoughts as she's trying to figure out she's looking at this guy, talking to this guy, and then she's trying to figure out you know, just as we do, we have these inner conversations. So it's not the stage directions. Okay. All right. So uh, that is Porto down at the Women's Project. I'll have a link to that in the show notes uh, if you'd like to keep checking that out. Yeah, it's playing. Let me just say uh, quickly, it's playing uh, through March 4th, and it's at the McGinn uh, Kazali Theater, which used to be the Promenade Theater. So it's uptown on 76th Street uh, and Broadway. That seems uh, in my memory that that theater has had a lot of names. (laughs) I've seen a few things there. Uh, All right, Peter. You got a chance to see, I think it was a one-night-only concert of Thoroughly Modern Millie. So tell us about that. Um, This was Monday night, and it was a benefit for the Actors Fund. And it was very impressive how many of the original cast members were there. There were 30 people in the original cast. 22 were there. Now, what's really – okay, so Sutton Foster was there, yeah, and she was terrific. And um, she got a standing ovation the moment she she stepped onto the stage. Um, Yes, indeed, Mark Kudish was there. Yes, indeed, um, uh, Gavin Creel was there. Sure, everybody of uh, great importance was there. But – what really impressed me <laughs> was in the chorus, there was Kate Baldwin and Casey Nicola. Okay, because they were in the original cast, and little did they know what was in store for them. Um, now, it was really terrific of Kate Baldwin to show up. Think about it. She's working. She could have said, uh, excuse me, guys, uh, this is my one night off. I'd like to rest. But out of loyalty and um, out of gratitude, and, you know, there's something about going back to where you started and uh, reliving that experience that uh, is significant. So I think that was part of it as well. So, too, for Casey Nicola, who certainly – I don't know if anybody got paid, but he certainly doesn't need the money. And uh, if you want proof of that, after all, uh, his name is on the Book of Mormon, his name is on Aladdin, and his name um, is on the incoming Mean Girls. So um, so we don't have to take up a collection for Casey Nicola. Uh, so, really, I thought it was terrific that they would show up and do it. What was so nice was that you could tell in the audience that there were people who were there who were living the experience they had, uh, what is it, 16 years ago uh, when Millie first happened. And um, they just loved having the experience all over again. And, of course, there were people who weren't theatergoers back then, maybe not even born then, who were having the wonderful time in experiencing uh, going back in history and seeing so many of the uh, original cast members. What what was significant to me were there were lines that had so much irony packed into them, Uh, for example, example, um, 
Jimmy tells Billy, you've come a long way. Well, good Lord, certainly Sutton Foster has, hasn't she? And this, of course, was her breakout role. Now, I don't know how many people know this, but she was actually the understudy when the show began in La Jolla. And the actress who was playing the role was having vocal problems that uh, I'm going to take a day off. All right. And um, so Sutton had to do the show and uh, she didn't know the she didn't know the dialogue. She knew the songs. So she performed the songs and she held the script. And afterwards, nobody held that against her because I am telling you that they said, um, they Sutton, uh, want to be the uh, star of the show, uh, which indeed she did. And um, so lines like that uh, really did um, impress me tremendously, thinking what must be going through her head when she's hearing lines like that? Or you've made the team, as um, Trevor Graydon, Mark Kudish, said to her. So that was uh, pretty amazing to me, um, thinking uh, what a career she's had since then and it might not have happened if indeed um that actress had um gone on uh, hadn't had vocal problems you know so but that is indeed show business so um <laughs> standing ovations galore um after forget about the boy after gimme gimme um everybody had just such a wonderful time and um it was really packed i mean in fact um the day of the show uh they contacted us in, um, in the press and said, um, look, please, it's going to have to be a single ticket. It just is because the demand for this is just so great. So please forgive us, but there's nothing we can do. Um, the Actors Funds needs a seat. And we understood. At least I did. I don't know about anybody else, frankly. But anyway, I understood. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that, but uh, whoa, um, it's so wonderful to go to one of these things. Um, but when you get a chance to see so much of the original cast and the choreography, this wasn't just a, a concert. Yes, they carried scripts and occasionally they needed them. But for the most part, it was a case where everybody was raring to go and ready to sing and dance and show us uh, that Millie is um, a wonderfully good time. So uh, I think a lot of people who are there will consider it one of the great nights uh, in their theater going lives. Mm. So, so much positive uh, word of mouth got around about this thing. Uh, is there any thought that you might think that we might see another? No, I, I don't think it'll be with this cast. But nevertheless, um, I think that we haven't seen the last of Billy on Broadway, and that's fine with me. Um, it is a joyous show, uh, and it's very nice to have – um, both contemporary songwriters um, mixed with um, songwriters of yore. I mean, the title song of Thoroughly Mon Millie, which got an Oscar nomination, is really terrific um, to on so many levels. I mean, it's criminal. What women will do is a wonderful lyric. And this is 1922 is a wonderful lyric, too, because the point is everybody thinks that the, the time they're living in, of course, is the most up-to-date time. You know, now we think of 1922 as quaint. It's almost 100 years ago. But when you're living in 1922, whoa, that's up to date. You know, so that's a very fine observation by Sammy Khan. But, of course, this is also – the score is also peppered occasionally with some operetta riffs, um, a bit of our sweet mystery of life. Uh, I'm falling in love with someone, a Victor Herbert song from way back when. And, you know, the audience went as crazy for these as they did for the other numbers. I mean, they just loved the operetta moments, even though if they were given a whole night of operetta, I don't think they would have such a good time. But in little doses, they really enjoyed it. I don't think we've had a successful operetta um, done in an operetta.
Loretta style. I'm not counting the Pirates of Penzance, which was spoofily directed. And that's not a complaint. Um, since the Red Mill in 1945, you know, I think that was the last one that really ran for a while. And uh, that was done in earnest. So to um, to see it was grandiose. Don't misunderstand me. The um, the um, operetta moments. But still, people went along with it and had such a good time and um, loved the excess of it. And then again, we had Harriet Harris again, which was really quite wonderful to see her um, playing that marvelous Mrs. Mears. And um, Shirley Ralph was there, too, as Muzzy. You know, so uh, it, it really was great to see so many people. And by the way, I'll grant you I was in row U. But still, um, <laughs> they didn't look older to me. Uh, so uh, it's as Peter, if did they did they film this by any chance? This would be a great Broadway HD or something like that. Wouldn't it? I have no idea. Nobody uh, mentioned that, so I I don't know. But what a, what a good point! It really would be uh, such a nice thing, uh, especially for people, as I say, who just missed it the first time around. Because Lord knows, in sixteen years, there are a number of people who uh, who have become uh, theater goers and uh, who weren't back then. So uh, so it it really was a marvelous opportunity for them too. I mean, just think of the uh, the wicked Hamilton Dear Evan Hansen fans uh, sure. that were not around when sure. Sure. when that happened. I, sure. We have to find out if Broadway HD or somebody else, uh, great performances, PBS or something like yeah, that. Yeah, someone. That. <laughs> if only we knew somebody at PBS. Hmm. All right, let's uh, continue on with the reviews. Jan, you got to see In the Body of the World, uh, the new Eve Ensler play. So tell us about that. This was a play that I was really looking forward to um, because it is uh, another uh, one-woman show uh, by uh, Eve Ensler, who uh, created uh, and performed for many years uh, the Vagina Monologues, um, which have taken on a a life of their own – and and even outside uh, the theater because it – performed all over it's uh there's they've sort of co-opted valentine's day as v-day uh to encourage women to uh be comfortable with their bodies to be able to talk about their bodies express themselves in this way uh this play had been marketed as a a play about uh eve's work And she has gone around the world and has become a real advocate for women, um, particularly uh, women in in third world countries. And this play was marketed as uh, being in part about her experiences um, working with women in the Congo and people who have seen plays like um, Ruined and... and, um, uh, what is the um, Denai Guerrero play that I'm 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 blocking? That was at the public uh, a few years ago. Um, also about women in these uh, war-ravaged countries where uh, rape is used as a weapon, and I was looking forward to that. However, during the process of her work in the, the actual Congo uh, with women who are recovering from these experiences, um, Ensler was diagnosed with um, cancer. And the play actually is more about her experience 
going through cancer. And it's an experience that I think she is still working through. And so she takes the audience almost beat by beat through her experience, almost as though this were a a therapy session. And I found it very uncomfortable. Uh, And I feel uncomfortable saying that because here's a woman who is a cancer survivor um, and she is clearly determined to go on with her life. Um, But I found it, you know, TMI, too much information. Um, We go through her chemo and the the side effects of, uh, of, of the chemo. There are attempts to draw a comparison between what's happening with her body and what's happening with the bodies of the women um, uh, in, in, in Africa. But I found that uncomfortable too. Uh, it, was, it, it was a play that made me uh, very itchy the entire time I was, I was there. And I actually could not wait to get uh, out of the theater. It was not... Um, and and enjoyable or and theater doesn't always have to be consoling uh, enjoyable um but i didn't find it enlightening uh either i just felt as though i were part of her therapeutic process i don't know peter i know you've seen it too what was your experience with it well, it's so funny you mentioned the thing about the Congo because that was my impression going in too. And I thought, oh, maybe I missed that in the press release. I, I guess I didn't know it was going to be about uh, her experiences with cancer and chemotherapy. But um, I, I'm, I'm somewhat glad to hear that you just have, have you say that because uh, now I guess I didn't quite miss that in the press release, or at least I'm inferring that. But uh, uh, I understand exactly where you're coming from on all this. And uh, I will admit that this is not something um, to take out your steady on a Saturday night and have a, a good rollicking time. Um, but on its own terms, for what it is, I, I thought it was uh, quite effective. And um, Lord knows what's in store for us all. And I do know that uh, so many people when they have something terrible happen to them health wise feel the need to uh, talk about it and talk about it quite a bit and uh, you might say well fine then have her do it with her friends you know don't have her charge umpteen uh, dollars would that it were teen dollars but anyway um, a a lot of money to come and and hear her problems Uh, but one also has to admit you know she's quite brave um, in the matter of fact way that she delivers it and you know for somebody who um, in photographs photographs as someone who looks a little severe I was surprised to see how charming she was and how endearing she was in and uh, very good um, connection with the audience at the beginning of the play before we knew any of this was going to happen and there are some literally 
revealing moments mm-hmm. that are very <laughs> I'm not going to give away what the revealing moment is mm-hmm. but it was very surprising to me so um I I cannot disagree with a, a, a syllable of what you've said uh but I I do feel that um there is uh, something else there that um may be of help to people who are going through this as well um I remember there was a play I never saw it but I remember there was a play in New Jersey called Chemo Buddies and uh, it was written by a woman who did Later, die. I'm sorry to say, of breast mm. cancer, and um, and I I know that while she's sitting in the waiting room and she's a playwright, she's saying to herself, "There's a play here, you know." I, and uh, of course, there is. You know, whether or not it's something people want to see is another story, and I'll grant you that. And I can certainly understand why you were uncomfortable, but, but um, I I certainly also thought about the fact that uh, if this were to happen to me, if I were to get this disease, would I be as brave as this lady has been, uh, or at least to say, you know, maybe. She She's had many, many moments of going crazy and screaming and why me and all that kind of stuff. But we didn't quite get that. And so um, I was impressed by the way she dealt with it. I guess if I knew what I was going into. I know. And so I felt uncomfortable with that. And a very good friend has just been diagnosed. And so I sat there feeling uh, yeah. uh, just. Yeah. You know, sort of whiplashed back, sure. Um, sure. Uh, and 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 forth. And there is also you talk about her engagement with the audience. There, at least at my uh, performance, there was a little bit of audience participation that I felt um, just was—I don't know—coercive, and um, I refused to participate. Yeah. So um, it was it. Uh, I, I did too. Um, but, by the way, in case you're saying to yourself, uh, here's Manhattan Theatre Club trying to save a buck, a one-person show. You know, there's no set. Well, yeah, as, yeah. as it turns out, there is a set, which turns out to be quite a surprise as well. Um, so we can't really uh, criticize Lynn and Barry for trying to save a buck. In fact, they one could effectively argue they went overboard in uh, in giving Eve Ensler what she wanted, obviously, for a set, because uh, um, there was no expense spared uh, at one point in this play, was there? True. Absolutely true. <laughs> what a surprise that was, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was – that was a little bit surreal. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> I, I haven't seen this, but all I can think of was that uh, the entire set they, they built for the – opening of the revival of Funny Thing Happened Away to the Forum with uh, Nathan Lane when they did the tragedy sure. comedy tonight. tonight. That, yeah, that, yeah. That, that ten second gag that they built a whole set for. You know? Sure, sure. sure. <laughs> All right. So uh that is uh we will have no uh, we'll have a link to In the Body of the World in the uh show notes if you want to check that out. Peter you got over to Atlantic Theater Company to see Hangman uh, Martin McDonough's new show. It's a Royal Court Theater production. That's the uh, premiere. So tell us about that. Well, this is the one playwright who really uh, excites me. Uh, and whenever uh, Martin McDonough writes a play, and I know that I'm going to see it, I count the days like a kid till Christmas. And um, more than that, uh, it's a case where I really, really, really um, get so excited when I walk into the theater and um, he rarely disappoints me and he certainly did not disappoint me at this point in time with this new play. Now, um, I will say that um, I have certainly heard a lot of people say, well, it's not top-notch McDonough and I will admit 
at the end of the play has a device that is essentially the same that he used in one of his earlier masterpieces. Yes, masterpieces. Uh, but um, that said, this, this is uh, a play that uh, is rollickingly funny. Um, and I think we really need to get a darker color than black to uh, really define uh, black comedy as seen through the eyes of Martin McDonough. I mean, here's a convicted man who's about to face the noose. Um, and what does he do? Uh, among other things, yes, he claims he's innocent. And um, frankly, I think he is. But um, that's left to the theater goer. But there he is facing the noose and he complains that he won't be executed by the country's chief hangman. But he's been assigned to the second stringer. I mean, you know, that's such a wild perception. Who else would think of that but Martin McDonough? You know, so um, he's got a crazy brain. And I mean that as a compliment. If anybody else has this much imagination. All I can say is this person is not writing plays because I don't see anybody like um, Martin McDonough, who really the term sui generis uh, applies tremendously. And um, so it is about this guy who finds himself out of work when hanging is um, uh, abolished in England. So he opens a pub. And but the thing is, he still has the self-importance that he had as this uh, man who literally was killing people. And um that does a job on you in a certain way. I mean, we never get the impression, never whatsoever, get the impression that Harry Wade, the name of the hangman, is somebody who is particularly bothered by the fact that he is killing people. It's all in the day's work. He's very matter of fact about it. Um, but he carries that over into the rest of his life. And we wonder if he's going to, you should pardon the expression, hang himself. Uh, and I mean that in the metaphorical sense, um, as, as the play goes on, because suddenly somebody comes into the bar who threatens him. I don't mean threatens him uh, literally uh, with words, but just the fact that he comes from London makes Harry stare him down because he's in Lancashire. And of course, he feels a little, uh, he feels like a second stringer in that way too, that he's not living in London. So um, he doesn't like this guy. And this guy will turn out to give him much, much grief as time goes on. And it's really wonderful um, that Johnny Flynn plays this uh, guy named uh, Peter, who uh, really has that look back in anger, angry young man persona that was really happening in Britain uh, during the early 60s when the play takes place. So um, it's very impressive in that way. But the funny parts, I mean, yeah, Harry is interviewed by a newspaper man and who points out that he is the second stringer, that a guy named Pierpoint was really the the guy who executed many more people than he did. And um, he point and Harry points out that, well, yeah, but I mean, he was around when World War II was happening and he, he got to execute all those war criminals. So, um, you know, if I were around then, you know, I would have been able to do more, you know, but I think there should be an asterisk next to his name. And for those of us who know baseball and remember or have heard about um, Roger Maris getting an asterisk next to his name for hitting 61 home runs, but in a season that had eight games longer than Babe Ruth's 60 home runs, that there was all this talk about an asterisk next to his name. Uh, to think of it in terms of hangman, I mean, it's just hilarious. So um, believe me, it gets gruesome. And there is a use of a chair that has been the most interesting since Ionesco wrote his play. So I can only say that even though the Atlantic um, run is sold out, and I'm telling you, I don't think I've seen so many people in front of an off-Broadway theater looking for tickets, you know, uh, seeing me walk up the street alone and hoping that um, uh, 
that nobody's going to join me. Um, I got asked for tickets for this more than any other off-Broadway show in recent memory. And, um, yeah, so I'm very, very glad that it seems to be moving to the Court Theater on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, that will give certainly many, many more people opportunity to see the play, which I think they should. Uh, gruesome, not as gruesome as other McDonough plays. No, no, no. Uh, in fact, the most gruesome thing that happens in this play is done so subtly that um, it's it's. It, it, I'm telling you, this guy's really um, <laughs> wonderful. We're very lucky to be living in an era. And welcome back, Martin McDonough, because you haven't done many plays in recent years. Because of course you've been doing movies, and of course your Three Billboards movie um, is terrific too. And I I wish you well at the Oscars, and I, I hope it happens because I think you certainly deserve that. And um, welcome back. Hmm. All right. Julie, are you a McDonough fan? I don't know his work, actually. I don't see a lot of plays. I do more musicals. Uh Have you seen Three Billboards? I have not. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering if he's a guy's playwright. Um, Oh, because you don't respond to him? I I I don't. Uh-huh. I I I'm going to see, um, and I'm I'm very grateful that I'm going to see, um, uh, uh, Hangman because, as you say, it's such a hot ticket. I'm going week after next. Um, but I, 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 the guys I know, the men I know, just really respond to him, and and I'm a little bit more foot draggy about him. I'm seeing it uh, March 6th, and Jan, I I have not responded well to Martin McDonough in in the past. Oh, so uh, it's not a gender thing. Okay, maybe uh, I should maybe I should see a doctor. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Doctor Doolittle. Um, I love the score to Doctor Doolittle. Anyway, go yeah. on. But uh, uh, you mentioned three billboards, and and there was uh, rumor this week that three billboards they're looking to adapt it for the stage. So, really? uh, so that would be interesting. Although, as my often discuss, uh, my often topic of discussion with with Matt Tamanini on today on Broadway is where where would they put it with all these long running shows? We seem to. Um, have less and less opportunities to get new works into the theaters. But uh, Matt assures me with his trusty spreadsheet that there will be theaters available. So, oh, it's color-coded. Uh, it's, it is. It's, Matt, Matt's it's spreadsheet is totally the thing. It, Still, it's, it's so painful a- to look to that space to the left of the Imperial and see yeah. nothing there when there was once a theater there before that parking garage was there. Mm-hmm. So, boy, 45th Street could have used another theater, certainly, and uh, something would be playing there now. So it is really too bad. Nobody so, knew. Nobody knew when uh, all those theaters were down. Let me ask be you needed. guys. Um, you know how when we say London's West End, it's kind of like, Theaters are everywhere in London. Okay, it's true. When we talk about Broadway, we're talking about Forty First to Fifty Ninth Street, Sixth Avenue to Tenth Avenue type of thing. I mean, certainly there could be a fifteen, eighteen hundred seat theater put, you know, in many of the places of New York City that we could, in essence, call Broadway. And with the changes do- down at uh, BAM. You know, perhaps BAM will become mm. an unofficial Broadway house. Uh, 
Yeah. Well, we I, certainly did that with the Vivian Beaumont. Do either of you yeah. know how they were able to persuade the Broadway League to uh, certify the Vivian Beaumont, which is up on 65th and Broadway, as a Broadway house? It's yeah, a matter I, of seats, isn't it? I, that's yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's a matter of seats. Yeah. Um, ironically enough, before oh. uh, the Beaumont happened, the Lincoln Center Repertory Theater um, was ensconced downtown at uh, West Fourth Street at a theater called the Anta Washington Square. It's now a part of NYU, but it was part of NYU then. But I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. it's now an NYU building. Uh, they tore it down entirely. In fact, Trinity Repertory in Providence bought the building, and we're, we're going to reconstruct the theater. There, but my point is um, that was considered Broadway, even though it was nowhere in the Broadway district. So it does have to do with uh, seating capacity, and of course, um, shows that used to be at the um, theater on Second Avenue, um, where Best Little Whorehouse yeah. started, where Grease started. Um, the it had a, a number of names like the Eden and the Intermediate and a few others as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it really has to do with that more than anything else. If you were over. 500 seats for a Broadway show. So what's really sad is uh, the Signal uh, Theater. Yeah. Go the ahead. Uh, Madison Square Garden shows haven't been really considered Broadway in that that garden. Oh, that's true, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. So I mean, obviously contracts come into play as well. So, uh, but a very good rebuttal, James. Um, I don't know the story behind that, but um, it's too bad the Ziegfeld Theater. Um, I don't mean the original yeah, Ziegfeld Theater, was, which was torn down in 1965, but the movie theater. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I mean, couldn't something have happened there? I, I passed by the other day, and it's now the um, the Ziegfeld Ballroom. So, uh, but it. Could have been the Ziegfeld Theater, I would think, but not that much money. Of course, millions, but you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. It had to be cheaper than starting from scratch. It just had to be. And I guess people were just afraid that um, people wouldn't be able to find it, which was one of the reasons why the original Ziegfeld Theater uh, fell into great disuse because uh, it was off the beaten track. And there used to be a theater right off 6th Avenue on 54th Street, fittingly enough for the longest time, called the 54th Street Theater. And um, even that was considered uh, just too far away. And that's where shows that were doomed, everybody thought were terrible, or shows, long-running shows, would go to die. Like Damn Yankees and Bye Bye Birdie went there. Uh, Do Re Mi did, too. So, you know, it's uh, it's too bad. I really do believe that if, if it's a hit show, people will find it, just as they found Man of La Mancha down at that yeah. and to Washington Square. It didn't suffer from being there. In fact, it profited from it because it was a, a different type of staging. It was, a, it, it was more of a regional theater type of look of a show, and New York hadn't seen it. And I really believe that was... Greatly important to Man of La Mancha's original success. So, yes, we do need new ones. And I'm sorry that that 46th Street um, area on 8th Avenue, which we heard for the longest time was going to be built uh, into a theater by the Schubert's, um, doesn't seem to be happening. Uh, but boy, we, yeah, could, we have we need it we now. We have uh, a handful of theaters in, in Midtown that I can think of. The Hammerstein Ballroom. You have the Ed Sullivan Theater. You have the Rose Ballroom in back of the Ed Sullivan Theater that uh, was just torn down and could have been a theater there. But also between 100 and uh, – I guess up in 125th Street to 181st Street, there are a handful of theaters uh, that occasionally do legit shows but are not considered Broadway theaters. But it's something for us to think about as we have this uh, uh, embarrassment of the riches of – where lots of uh, shows are looking to come in and can't come in because of real estate. Anyway, the last uh, review of the morning is Bar Mitzvah Boy. I don't have any information on this, Peter, so why don't you take it away? 
This is a 1978 musical by Julie Stein and Don Black um, based on uh, Jack Rosenthal's teleplay. It was only a 75-minute teleplay done in England on the BBC. And uh, if you know the third play of Plaza Suite, where the girl will not come out of the bathroom to get married, there is a similarity because here's a boy who's going to be bar mitzvahed by his working-class family. The father drives a cab. I don't think the mother works. And they've been planning for months, of course. They've spent a lot of money, so on and so forth. And uh, just about as he's about to be bar mitzvahed, he runs away. He will not be bar mitzvahed. And the reason he decides not to be bar mitzvahed is very, very telling and very impressive. He's not wrong with the reason he gives. I'm not going to give it away, but it's it's quite a perception. And um, I remember when I saw the original Teleblay, I literally went, wow, when he said what he said. It really made the impression on me. All right, so it became a musical. It was directed by Martin Charnin, uh, who was flying high, because this was shortly after Annie. And, um, you know, Julie Stein was still a, a force in musical theater then. Don Black is certainly no uh, slouch as a lyricist, and I think the These are his best lyrics ever. Um, So um, I think it's a terrific show. I'm sorry it never got to Broadway. It was announced for the Minskoff Theater in 1979. It was going to open on Halloween. I remember that vividly. But uh, it didn't happen because the show only ran 77 performances in London. It deserves much better, and I'm so glad that Mufti is giving it a chance. Of course, Julie Stein is somebody who's brassy Broadway, uh, if you know the Overture to Gypsy, and if you don't. I'm very surprised you're listening. Um, The Overture to Funny Girl, which I even think is better. That's a minority opinion, God knows. But Julie Stein was famous for these brassy overtures and Dick Perry playing that trumpet that you could actually see gleaming uh, when you were in the theater, especially when he stood during the Overture of Gypsy and played those wonderful burlesque riffs. So so here you lose that, of course, at Mufti because you're dealing with a piano. So it's not quite the ideal situation for um, a, a Julie Stein score. That said, um, it really is quite, quite terrific. And um, while we miss the brass, we certainly get the story and we get the music and lyrics. I will say that this is a revised version by David Thompson. I'm not saying he did a bad job. I'm not saying that for a tenth of a second. But I am sorry that some songs that I'm very, very fond of have uh, gone by the wayside and songs that were dropped along the way, um, which I don't think are as good as the original, uh, did come in. So, uh, But still, this is definitely worth seeing. It was done uh, about 30 years ago um, in, um, in some theater on the east side and it even changed its name. It's something like Songs for a Saturday Night, I think it was called. Mark Gottfried, the critic, um, adapted it then and set it in Brooklyn, which I don't think was a bad idea, actually. But anyway, here we have it um, in its original uh, setting of London. Um, and um, I, I really do feel you get over that. I'm not going to say that you're going to have the greatest time of your life, but I do think this is a musical worth paying attention to. And uh, certainly you're going to be tremendously impressed by the cast. There's not a weak link among them. And, of course, you do need a young man to play this part. Um, And uh, what's wonderful is the young man uh, whose first name is Peyton, and I'm sorry I forgot his last name, something like Musk. But anyway, um, that he was really terrific in dominating the proceedings. And even though the Muftis, uh, they carry around scripts um, and scores uh, because they are uh, glorified readings – 
Um, yeah, he didn't look at it once. You know, it's so wonderful to be a kid when your memory is still uh, great and you're you're spongy in that way that you pick up everything. So, um, so it's a performance well worth seeing, and uh, so is Tim Jerome in the cast, who's really quite wonderful, and Ben Fankhauser, who has a terrific song. They're all good songs uh, from the London Cast album. If you have that album, and I urge you to find it somewhere because it it really is a stellar recording. So, uh, yeah, I. I could recommend Bar Mitzvah Boy. All right. So before we wrap up for today, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. You can listen to us in many ways. One of the ways is iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Uh, Stitcher plays us. Google Play. Anywhere that you can get finer podcasts, you can find Broadway Radio. Uh, contact information for Peter, for Jan, for Julie, for me can be found at BroadwayRadio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? Yeah, the question was, a novel in the 30s was made into a film in the 50s, but there the sex of the protagonist was changed from a man to a woman. When the musical version of the novel opened in the 60s, the protagonist was a man again, but a woman wound up stealing the show. What's the name of the property that never changed and the woman who stole the show? Well, I'm talking about Jerome Weidman's I Can Get It For You Wholesale, which had Harry Bogan as its anti-hero in the novel. But for the 1951 film, Susan Hayward was playing the character who was renamed Harriet Boyd. It was back to Harry Bogan for the musical, where Elliot Gould played him. While he was at it, he fell in love with the woman who stole the show from him, Barbara Streisand. So Doug Strassler was the first to get it, followed by Jack Leshner and Stephen Bell. This week's question, what do these Tony-nominated Best Musical Losers have in common? La Plume de Matante? Ilya Darling, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, Black and Blue, Miss Saigon, Wicked, and Something Rotten. All nominated for Best Musical. None of them won, but what do they all have in common beyond that? Okay. Well, if you have an answer to that, email us at TriviaBroadwayRadio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So on behalf of Peter Felicia... Jan Simpson and Julie Musbach. This is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.